The Colorado Behavioral Health and Wellness Summit brought clinicians, educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders in the field of behavioral health together at the University of Denver. The summit was a collaboration between the Mental Health Center of Denver, the University of Denver, and Envision U, who were gracious enough to invite the Emergency Medical Minute to record the event and share it with you all. Here is Dr. Stephen Wright from the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention with his presentation, Benzos, Boon or Blunder, and testimonies from John and Terry on their struggle with benzodiazepine. Okay, great, let's start. Hi, my name is Steve and I'm a recovering benzodiazepine overprescriber. You guys know the group, okay. Hi, my name is Steve and I'm a recovering benzodiazepine overprescriber. Hi, Thank you. Uh, so it all started out very innocently. I grew up in the Midwest, strong codependency features, genetically based, environmentally influenced, but I raised, raised it to a high art. Uh, and that was something that has certain amount of value, right? But I had a lot to learn. Uh, grew up, you know, with uh, uh, family medicine in my family. I wanted to do that, free clinics. I was going to save everybody, save the world, uh, things like that. Uh, but I had a lot to learn. I had to learn about how we as medical providers, and I'm a primary care physician, how we needed to address the issue of taking care of individuals, not just from the point of view of what I'd say is the commercial model, where an individual comes in, I want a blue shirt, I get a blue shirt if I have the money, I want the blue pill, I get the blue pill. And so, uh, really important to understand that that's the environment that we all grew up in as, as medical providers. We truly wanted to help individuals uh, as uh, through this whole pr uh, particular process. So, um, I grew up in family medicine, 1982 graduate of uh, family medicine residency in Fort Collins, started doing addiction medicine 32 years ago, started doing medical pain management, about 15 years ago, uh, and I, it has a lot to do with the neurophysiology. I love neurophysiology and how that plays into making a significant difference for those of us uh, that are affected by a variety of conditions. I'm the kind of person that wakes up in the middle of the night thinking, what is the anterior insula of the brain, saying to the posterior insula of the brain, you know, the voices. Uh, <clears throat> I know Terry hears those voices because my voices talk to her voices. Uh, but. But, but it's really important and because it's a difference that truly can make a difference in understanding the, uh, the issues about uh, benzodiazepines and opioids and other substances uh, really quite important. So along the way, uh, I, I got involved in working with pharmaceutical industry. And yes, it's true, I speak for the dark side. Uh, but it's not exactly what you hear. It is true that there is a, a significant dark side with the pharmaceutical industry in terms of how they pressed us to misrepresent things in certain ways. However, not quite like that anymore, or at least that's my perception. And uh, to explain that, you know, I was at a conference where I, you know, interacted with a variety of pharmaceutical industry and the words irresponsible came out of my mouth on two uh, occasions. And so we don't just have this bobblehead approach of agreeing with everything there, but I learned a lot of what I know now from the pharmaceutical industry, and that's tragic in a way, uh, because we don't have the kind of support 
that we really need to have in relation to understanding uh, medications over, uh, over this period of time. I'm also the medical consultant for the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices, not to wholly discredit benzodiazepines, but to put them in the right place. Because this is kind of how it starts out, right? <laughs> we, we power up in the day at the beginning with caffeine and then sprinkle in medicines through the day uh, over time. And we end up, however, with uh, this kind of a picture where homes are really built up around medications. And then we end up with often uh, uh, this kind of a circumstance too, where we understand that the press to use medications is really out there among our patients we're trained to do this. What are the better medications for this? The desire to take medication, perhaps the greatest feature which distinguishes up from, from animals, the, uh, the great uh, physician, Sir William Osler. But then we can end up with this too, fractured lives. And are these individuals fractured by their primary condition or are they fractured by the kind of things that we do? So we need to look at this and look at this seriously. And we're gonna look at benzodiazepines want to take a look at the neuropharmacology because that's relevant. Uh, the risks, benefits, and alternatives to benzodiazepine receptor agonist use, and I'll explain that, uh, and how withdrawal plays into all of this and how we might address working with patients uh, as well. It starts with this. Love this Munch uh, uh, painting where we see this angst and anxiety, which is really something that we do need to address in, as medical providers. Uh, it's a matter of how we uh, address this that becomes quite important. There is a long history of benzodiazepines. They've been with us for 50, 60 years, 1957. Uh, Leo Sternbach uh, almost accidentally identified chlorodiazepoxide, which we know as Librium, uh, in his lab, and after finding that this agent uh, in animals relieved what was perceived to be the uh, anxiety in animals, it was released and marketed in 1960, and it was just one year later that Leo Hollister identified severe withdrawal among uh, a veterans' population uh, right away. Diazepam came soon after that. Leo Sternbach was the one who also identified that, 1963. 1968 to 1981, diazepam was the most prescribed medication of any type, any medication, any, uh, uh, any treatment uh, domain whatsoever. And benzodiazepines slowly became evident to all of us, not only the withdrawal effect, but other side effects uh, that were referencing addiction. And so 1975, placed on the schedule. And those of you who don't know uh, scheduling, uh, this is the DEA scheduling medications that have uh, non-medical use potential, addiction potential, uh, and uh, you know other problems that are related to that. In 1979, uh, Kennedy actually had hearings, and there was a large amount of testimony in front of the Congress uh, where individuals expressed uh, the difficulties associated with benzodiazepines, and notably nothing was done whatsoever at that time. Even so, Malcolm later uh, actually had a review, the earliest review I can find, 1983, where he described the risks, the benefits, the indications of use way back in that day. And you know, if you take a look at that, it really hasn't changed all that much over time. 
we did recognize at that time it was a significant advance over what was there before. The barbiturates, meprobamate, uh, other agents like that were far more risky uh, than the uh, benzodiazepines. 1991, the Beers List was published. The Beers List is a listing of medications uh, which for the elderly present significant risk. Uh, and it's an interesting list. Benzodiazepines showed up in 1991, have showed up ever since then. It's not necessarily a list that I'm really fond of, and the reason is is that I work in the opioid domain, and if you look for opioids in the list, they're virtually absent, which is stunning to me, uh, but, it, but that is the way it is. And then really a big landmark was that in 1999, the Ashton Manual was published, and we'll talk a little bit about that in its rele relevance for benzodiazepines. How do they work? So benzodiazepines, it's been well worked out to a certain degree. Uh, benzodiazepines work on the GABA-A receptor at a different site on the receptor, and this is really quite relevant. Uh, GABA is the major inhibitor of the central nervous system, it decreases excitability, it's very important, it balances off the glutamate, which is the stimulating neurochemical of the central nervous system. It is what we call a positive allosteric modulator. And what that means is it sits on the receptor, changes the shape of the receptor, so the GABA is much more effective in its inhibition of uh, a neuronal activity. Six different alpha subunits, four different beta subunits, three different uh, gamma subunits, and you can see a descriptor here, and you can see where the GABA site is on this particular picture uh, where uh, GABA itself works. Benzodiazepines land on a different site, change the shape, and make GABA work more effectively in its inhibition. So since all that, uh, about 14 benzodiazepines now on the market, uh, we also have the Z drugs, which are named this way because they're named uh, in the generic phone uh, form or predominantly uh, Z is the first name. Uh, of these, uh, Zoplicone is no longer available in the United States. These are primarily agents that are preferred to benzodiazepines in terms of their use for insomnia, but they also have a significant risk as well. Serious side effects. Uh, sedation, obviously, uh, amnestic side effects where you see sleepwalking, sleep eating, sleep uh, driving, sleep sex, can you imagine? Uh, all of those things which are really quite important, but we also recognize that cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is preferred and indeed is first line. These are the benzodiazepine receptor agonists, which means that as a group, Z drugs are chemically different than the benzodiazepines, but they all land on the GABA receptor to do the same sort of thing. They activate the, uh, uh, the receptor in such a way that GABA becomes more effective as an inhibitory agent. So, how much do we use? Well, it depends on the survey instrument that is used, but anywhere in the United States currently between seven and 15% of the population uh, takes a benzodiazepine. And I think that's an important number to keep in mind uh, because when we look at the opioid crisis in relation to all of this, in the United States, about 17% of all of us have used an opioid in any one year. Uh, so the frequency is very similar 
uh, to that of uh, opioids. And indeed, this has doubled since 2003, uh, this particular number. So uh, a highly relevant issue. So while uh, diazepam 1968 to 1981, the most prescribed agent, then taking a dip, now is rising back up. In other countries, uh, similar kind of numbers, Canada 4%, Europe 4 to 16%, depending on where you live. And there are a variety of factors as to why uh, these agents might be used in, in certain populations. Anxiety, obviously, insomnia, obviously, but also in pain. Uh, chronic medical conditions in general, being female, white, in retirement, low income, elderly, very high percentages, uh, even up to a third of uh, our elderly are taking these medications, smoking, poor health, more than one prescriber. And then this, computer prescribing. Uh, when we make it easier to write a prescription, like on a computer, we're going to see more prescriptions that are written. And so that certainly is an issue uh, as well. We are seeing this in particular these days because of its presence in pain management. About one in five individuals who are also on an opioid are also, uh, in, uh, one in five individuals on an opioid are also on a benzodiazepine. That's a big number. Uh, certainly higher than that 15% uh, that we see otherwise. The risks of co-prescribing uh, result in uh, emergency room visits, hospitalizations uh, doubling in that regard. And now we recognize that in the opioid-associated deaths, about 50% or more of individuals that die of an opioid-related uh, overdose death, uh, benzodiazepines are on board. That number has transitioned from 1999 from 13% to 2013 uh, of, of 31%, and now at about 52%. And if you look in the state of uh, North Carolina, it's up to 80% of the deaths that are, uh, that are found there related to opioids. So does it work uh, for pain? Well, no, uh, not particularly well. Uh, spine pain reviews are mostly unfavorable. The old chestnut that we in primary care used to do, uh, think about is if you have an acute back injury with spasm, let's use a little diazepam at the same time. That has not played out. It's ineffective in studies that are out there. Centralized pain. Centralized pain is like fibromyalgia, burning, lightning, electric, that kind of pain. There's potential benefit uh, because of the way the subunits of the GABA-A receptor uh, work, but there's not a lot of data. There is a little bit of data supporting the use in uh, multiple sclerosis, and it may have to do with the spasticity that's associated with that and spasticity-associated pain. And there is uh, perhaps a role for burning mouth syndrome. These are not common pain syndromes at all. But in looking at all of the different pain domains, uh, uh, pain types, that's all that I can find. So basically, in pain, it has no importance as an analgesic agent, excepting in these rare circumstances as a possibility. But there is a major downside. This is a, a picture of the uh, deaths that are associated with benzodiazepines, and you can see that they're rising rising for both males and females over a period of time. What about non-medical use? So uh, 
Here we can jump into some of the, uh, the terminology. So we have the old term of abuse, and this has been highly used uh, throughout the literature and commonly used in, 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 the, in, the very, in our addiction uh, experience for uh, taking care of individuals. Uh, but non-medical use is probably the better term than that. Abuse is somewhat pejorative in its nature. It implies you know what the motivational dynamics of the individual are, which you don't always know, and the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for transitioning to five, abuse was removed as a diagnostic category and replaced with mild substance use disorder. So all the old literature that says abuse was probably reflecting not abuse, but actually mild addiction uh, for these individuals, and so it's a confusing terminology. So the way I like to look at it <clears throat> is that misuse means taking it for the correct reason, but in the wrong way. So double dosing a benzodiazepine for anxiety, double dosing an opioid for pain. That's a misuse. Non-medical use, using it for a reason other than what it's prescribed for. So taking an opioid, for example, for the purpose of uh, emotional relief or to get high, uh, that kind of a thing. Similarly, with uh, benzodiazepines, using it to amplify uh, an opioid high or something like that. So the numbers on this, non-medical use, these are the best numbers I can find out there, 0.7 to 2.3% of the population. Far more in high school and college populations, about 8% there. Uh, and then what about the disease of addiction, which is separate and away from non-medical use? Non-medical use, of course, is not a good idea, uh, but it's not addiction. So addiction is defined by compulsion, thinking about it all day long, loss of control, today I'm going to have two, and then I actually take 20, continuation in spite of adverse consequences, I get loaded, I plow my car into the tree, I swear I won't do it again, but I do. Uh, that's the disease of addiction, and it's separate and away from non-medical use. So the best numbers out there, 8 to 10% of the po population that uses uh, benzodiazepines non-medically have the disease of addiction. But even that, I really question, and the reason is, is that there's a criteria in there. This DSM-5 outlines 11 criteria. You need two, at least, for the, uh, for the uh, diagnosis of addiction. And one of the criteria is, is, has to do with trying to reduce the amount that is taken, uh, and individuals that are on benzodiazepines are doing that very often, but they don't have the disease of addiction because craving doesn't sit behind all that. It's just because it's so difficult to do that. And so it's really important to understand that there probably is a lot of misdiagnosis of addiction when it comes to benzodiazepines because those efforts that individuals have uh, to reduce the dose, not related to, I want this in order to get high, but uh, their difficulty in, in terms of the withdrawal process. And we're part of that problem too as prescribers because we haven't over the years really assisted individuals in a successful way to be able to do that. It's a different kind of animal. Nonetheless, benzodiazepines do have addiction liability even though it's a small number. Uh, alprazolam tends to show up uh, very frequently. Uh, diazepam is up there as well. 
Uh, but usually benzodiazepines, when they're used non-medically, are used in order to amplify the effects of other uh, substances that are addiction-prone, like alcohol, like opioids, or to help soften the withdrawal effects of these agents uh, as well. That's how they're typically used non-medically. And this is really a critical point because the vast majority of individuals on benzodiazepine receptor agonists that are struggling with this, are this is all related to physiologic dependence. It is not related to addiction. And that becomes important because in terms of our treatment or management of this condition, physiologic dependence, sending them to an addiction program is not particularly effective. They can't connect with a 12-step program in terms of the kind of experience that others are having in 12-step and is off-centered. So it begins with anxiety, very typically when we're looking at benzodiazepines. So Mark Twain, I've had a great many troubles in my life, most of which never happened. So there are a lot of things that are really normal events in our life also uh, that we can say do not need to be medicated. These are transient or what's called state anxiety uh, that individuals experience. We don't have to medicate all that. So what is anxiety? Anxiety is the feeling in relation to an anticipated threat. Fear is a feeling related to an immediate threat. What's going to happen right in front of me, the, the tiger is chasing me down. And then we have stressors that are events, worry are the thoughts, stress are the physical responses to that. And then we have the anxiety disorders, which are very specifically defined. This is, these are circumstances in which anxiety exists for a six-month or longer period of time. Not that transient thing. It is functionally impairing and in circumstances where the actual threat is far less than the, ang the anxiety would reflect. So I'm fearful of standing up and giving a talk. None of you guys are really going to hurt me, I think. Uh, and, uh, but nonetheless, that anxiety is far greater than the actual threat that the individual experiences. This is the trait anxiety, which is sort of more, uh, I think of it in terms of being more hardwired in than the state anxiety where I'm worried about an exam and then, uh, then, and it's, uh, then it goes away after the exam takes place. There's also anxiety in a variety of other states. And <clears throat> you know, what's interesting to me is, is that Science is not a static thing. We're continuously evolving into understanding what's going on, and that's reflected in the movement from DSM-4 to DSM-5, and that occurred in 2013. We now recognize that anxiety in post-traumatic stress disorder and uh, obsessive-compulsive uh, disorders, uh, these are, anxiety is important, but they are not the core features no longer are PTSD and OCD categorized as anxiety disorders for that reason. So we have anxiety also in a variety of other medical conditions as well. So what about that? Why not just kind of power on through and deal with things? So it was Nietzsche who said, whatever doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Joy and suffering are inseparable. Well, he's wrong about that and tell that to these folks, uh, another Munch uh, painting, you know, this, this is very disabling and we have to address that in that particular way because anxiety has 
medical consequences. And I know there's a lot of discussion around, is it a disease, is it not a disease? Uh, you know, and I sit on the side that anxiety disorders are a disorder, a disease, a medical condition, which is a collection of things that, uh, that you can describe as having an expected course if treated, an expected course if not treated, and is more or less a hardwired, not necessarily permanent, uh, but it can be uh, fairly permanent in terms of its uh, characteristics. So anxiety can cause brain changes uh, that are not unlike aging. Uh, quality of life function goes down, sympathetic hyperarousal, cardiac events are associated, uh, sexual dysfunction, suicidality, particularly with PTSD, uh, discognition, financial burden, and so when we look at it in terms of treating that, though, you have to balance off what the treatment effects are in relation to the severity of the problem that an individual is experiencing with uh, anxiety. So how does this work? The basic principles are, does it work, whatever it is, and that's true for non-medication as well as medication approaches, does it work without side effects, and if there are side effects, are these side effects manageable? And then kind of a new kid on the block in terms of uh, my experience in medical field over the last 30-some uh, years is does it continue to work over time? Is it durable? And are there side effects that may appear over time? And this is particularly important because I grew up in the world where if a side effect is going to happen, you're going to kind of see it in the first two to three months. If it occurs later on, it's probably something else. Well, we're understanding that a lot differently now. So in terms of the principles as well, we need to balance our decision-making. And the balancing act it has to do with uh, what are the risks, the benefits, and the alternatives uh, for a particular agent. And this applies to all medications that we look at. So what are the risks? There are many of them with benzodiazepine receptor agonists, sedation, dizziness, vertigo, fatigue. A lot of this goes away after you start taking it uh, initially. Uh, discognition, the inability uh, to think through things, memory, uh, decision-making. Uh, there's also confusion, uh, anterograde amnesia, which is blackout. We're familiar with that in relation to uh, alcohol. It also occurs with benzodiazepines. Uh, decreased attention, psychomotor impairment, where we have incoordination, uh, stumbling, falls, falls and fractures are all connected to that uh, slurred speech. And then there's this odd category of disinhibition where my inhibition towards things that I normally would not do, I actually do. It's sort of the upside down effect, the unexpected effect of benzodiazepines. We think of them as calming agents, but in a certain uh, subset of individuals taking it, they become excited, impulsive. It may prompt violence, uh, hostility, uh, and even, uh, even homicides uh, is what we're finding. Other adverse mood effects include emotional blunting. Keep in mind that whatever takes the bad stuff away is also going to blunt the good stuff. And so individuals very commonly will experience a flattening of motions uh, over time. It can actually prompt uh, mania, depression, suicidality. Uh, and this is particularly important uh, uh, in this state where we have pretty much the highest suicide rate uh, of any state in the nation. 
One can develop tolerance uh, and phys uh, physical dependence, uh, intoxication and addiction. And back to the terminology. So physiologic dependence, I think, is the better term rather than dependence. And one of the reasons is that the old use of dependence, and actually it's still being used by the World Health Organization and the diagnostic uh, uh, categories that are established in the ICD-10, physiologic, uh, I'm sorry, dependence is actually equivalent to addiction, but it's a confusing term. Dependence means reliance upon. I'm dependent on oxygen. If you take that away, I don't do very well. I might be dependent on a beta blocker for my blood pressure. If you take that away, I don't do well either. That's not addiction. So I think whenever we use the term dependence, we should attach physiologic, which has both physical and psychological characteristics associated with that. And then, of course, the withdrawal problems that we're going to get into, you know, is it the reactivation of the underlying problem like anxiety uh, or rebound where my anxiety is even greater than the original baseline as a result of removal of the agent and the withdrawal syndrome? We'll talk more about that. And then respiratory depression. And this is where we get into the concerns about co-prescribing, particularly with uh, opioids. By, by themselves, benzodiazepines are very hard to kill yourself with. Uh, you, you can, uh, certainly, but it's uh, much more difficult. However, when co-prescribed with opioids, that's where we went into trouble with overdose and overdose death. And for those of us in the uh, clinical universe, what I find is particularly useful is let's find out. Let's find out what the problem is. And we can do oxygenation studies such as nocturnal oximetry which can tell me if somebody's at risk. And a lot of us in the clinical universe aren't really doing that. It's an easy strategy to actually do that. And once identifying that an individual is at risk, so for example, if you're more than 10% of the time under 90% saturation on an overnight screening test, you have a problem and we need to change the prescribing because the individual is at risk. We also have to do a formal sleep study because it's important to identify what the nature of that problem is. Is it obstructive sleep apnea? Is it central sleep apnea? And what do we do about that? And we do know that uh, chronic benzodiazepine use is associated with increased uh, mortality. All important. But what about over time? Uh, because we see a lot of individuals that are on for months, years, can you develop problems? The answer is certainly yes. Uh, depression tends to occur over a period of time. The early studies uh, using benzodiazepines in relation to uh, individuals that have depression, particularly agitated or anxiety-associated depression, it worked maybe eight weeks. And then at that particular time, uh, uh, the antidepressant uh, benefit of uh, benzodiazepines goes away and typically gets worse discognition uh, gets worse. We do see a lot of literature supporting an association with benzodiazepines over time and dementia, and of course addiction, which is rare. But particularly interesting to me, particularly in the pain domain uh, as well, is this sensitization phenomenon where the central nervous system gets wound up hypersensitized uh, in, a, in a phenomenon that's called kindling. 
Kindling comes out of the alcohol literature and the alcohol research where if I am on and off alcohol, the next withdrawal gets worse each time I'm on and off alcohol. And the same kind of thing can actually occur with benzodiazepines. So that going on and off of courses of benzodiazepines not necessarily favorable. Actually, benzodiazepines has been associated with increased anxiety. And this was a study by Heather Ashton, a giant in our field, in 1987, where she took 50 individuals requesting discontinuation of benzodiazepines. All of them had anxiety that was worse on the benzodiazepines than they originally had. And not only that, about 20% of individuals had agoraphobia. Agoraphobia is that anxiety condition where I won't leave the home because it's too intense to be able to show up in a social or work environment for these individuals. 20% of them had agoraphobia that started while they were on benzodiazepines. And all of them, or virtually all of them, it's hard to get a numerical number from the study, got better after the benzodiazepines uh, uh, went, uh, went away. So. Uh, that is a, a condition that has not really been investigated since then, but is really quite important and anecdotally is regularly reported by individuals that are experiencing problems with benzodiazepines. Neurologic symptoms seem to get worse, and primarily the pain conditions. Very interesting. It seems like there's a benzodiazepine-induced pain syndrome. And a lot of individuals that uh, uh, take benzodiazepines can express that, uh, that symptom complex as well. And of course, uh, persistent withdrawal. This came out of the blue to me, uh, clonazepam being associated with cancer uh, as a possibility. It certainly gets worse. So why would do, we do this? You remember this guy, uh, Hippocrates, you know, first do no harm. Primum non nocere, how many of us believe that? I don't. Uh, I do economic harm for every patient that I see. I give them medications with side effects, and I refill those medications if those side effects are manageable. What we actually do is do less harm, and I think it's really important to look at that. We're looking at, you know, what's the benefit and risk ratio, not an absolute zero harm zero gain kind of equation. So what about the benefits? So first line, there actually is a fir are first line uses for benzodiazepines. Individuals with have a seizure that doesn't stop in the emergency room, nothing better than a benzodiazepine. Procedure amnestic, I had a colonoscopy, I really didn't want to know all the details of that. Uh, benzodiazepines can help me have that amnesia in relation to procedures. Valuable. Alcohol withdrawal, number one. It remains that way. We've looked at a variety of alternatives and nothing stands up to a benzodiazepine. And then we use it also for a variety of movement disorders, muscle relaxation, anxiety states and traits, um, insomnia and seizures in general, clobazam and uh, clonazepam probably have a very narrow role for, a uh, for uses in individuals with seizure disorders not well controlled by other agents. So, in anxiety, we do see data that very much supports short-term use. However, the benefit often declines uh, after the initial benefit. 
Long-term efficacy has not been demonstrated over time, although there are claims by uh, experts, so to speak, that say that indeed you can do that. And I'll never say never in medicine, uh, but I think that that number uh, numerically is probably very small. And benzodiazepine withdrawal can actually improve anxiety. So picture yourself in, the, in a clinical setting, somebody's speaking to you about having anxiety that is now worse. Do you go up on a benzodiazepine, which a lot of us think about in that context, or do you think of it in terms of possibility that the benzodiazepine is contributing to the anxiety, perhaps a benzodiazepine-induced hyperangiogenesis and we're, we're just kind of stumbling into this and starting to think about this because of what we know about opioids. Opioid-induced uh, hyperalgesia, increased pain from the opioids when the opioids indeed were intended to reduce pain in the first place. There are lots of alternatives for anxiety, and they all address different uh, neurochemical pathways, probably have values in a certain way, what interests me is the plant-based medicines, and I know you're thinking cannabis, right? Uh, so what we know about that at this time is the studies are mixed in that regard. And we do know that the cannabinoids have an indirect effect on GABA. And what I've come to understand and be concerned about is anything that has uh, an effect on GABA could have downstream effects that are really quite negative over time. Maybe not a good idea. I don't want to stand here. Uh, 20 years from now, well, I probably won't be that around that long, but uh, I don't want to stand here 20 years from now and say, oh, sorry about that. You know, the cannabinoids were just as bad as the benzos in that regard. So there's a, there needs to be a developing uh, sense as to what's going on. Think in terms of, you know, how we did those studies for uh, cannabis and anxiety. Individuals that are users show up and they mark a score I feel anxious, I feel depressed, I don't feel anxious, I don't feel depressed. Well, it turns out the majority of those individuals were using it on a daily basis, and so they could be filling out those scoring screeners um, while they're loaded. And you know, that's not going to give you accurate information about the long-term use characteristics. Picture uh, what we know about alcohol, for example. I take a drink, I get relief, but my ongoing drinking behavior over time increases anxiety and increases depression. So those all, all those studies need to be redone. But there are plant-based medicines that may have uh, uh, opportunities. Lavender, for example, was compared to uh, lorazepam, which is a benzodiazepine, and came out equivalent. And the cool thing about it, lavender does not work at the GABA system, it works in the serotonergic system. So there may be options in relation to that. And then there are non-pharmacologic approaches as well. Self-directed approaches after training, exercise, movement meditation, mindfulness, uh, relaxation, all of those are valuable. Professionally directed uh, uh, modalities as well. Cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, acupuncture, massage, all have value. So we land on a situation when we're looking at these alternatives, easier to write prescriptions, but much more difficult to an under, uh, come to an understanding with people. Kafka uh, wrote this uh, in the early 1900s, and that's so true. At the end of the visit, the, the easiest thing for me to do is to conclude that with a prescription. The expectation very much is 
uh, for many, many patients is that I'm going to conclude with a prescription and patients are dissatisfied if I don't have that uh, prescription pad in hand. So, is there utility in anxiety? Yes, I would say there is. And so for crisis anxiety, in the absence of psychosis, it can be very valuable for that acute one-time, two-time use uh, in those circumstances. For anxiety disorders, and I'm not talking anxiety at large, I'm talking about the disorder. Remember, six-month, functionally impairing, the threat is less than the anxiety would, would imply. For these individuals, yes, there is benefit, but as a bridge. So as, a, as one writes the benzodiazepine prescription, one also should be invoking the other treatment processes uh, as well. And why would one do that? Uh, because the other processes take time. It takes time uh, for an individual who's functionally impaired by anxiety to arrive to a therapist to get cognitive behavioral therapy, which works as well as benzodiazepines, and for the cognitive behavioral therapy to work or the acceptance and commitment therapy uh, as well. And then specifically in the two conditions where we have anxiety in PTSD or OCD, the data is pretty clear. It is not helpful, and it may be contraindicated, particularly with PTSD. Think of it in terms of the disinhibition. So if I take a benzodiazepine and I'm disinhibited, individuals with PTSD, have the challenge of dealing with inappropriate behavior, uh, a response with violence, that might lower the threshold where I act out on these things as well. So the individuals with PTSD and OCD and have associated anxiety, benzodiazepines do not have a role. They do not have an early role. Uh, other uh, processes need to be invoked. And in fact, benzodiazepines can interfere with the therapy piece, uh, particularly with PTSD. So say we take the leap, uh, uh, take the leap and write the benzodiazepines. What do we do then? Uh, you know, when do we stop? We want, we think in terms of, you know, what uh, the, the classic situations when something no longer works, yes, we stop it then. Uh, and don't assume that the anxiety insomnia is worse if that's what's going on because as I mentioned, the benzodiazepine-induced hyperangiogenesis, which I believe is a real entity and not studied yet, is really important. Side effects, we stop medications if there, uh, there are side effects, and it's important to monitor for this, particularly in the domains of pain, mood, cognition that individuals will have, and you wanna monitor with nocturnal oxygenation studies to see if there's a signal that that is getting worse. Uh, keep in mind that as we get older, uh, our physiology changes, and what may have worked when we're 20 may not work so well when we're 60 in terms of adverse outcomes. And then, of course, uh, duration of use longer than four weeks. We recommend tapering or offering tapering to everybody in that particular context. Uh, there are some reviews that say otherwise, but this is uh, by far and away the most frequent and very appropriate uh, uh, recommendation. What happens when we do this? Uh, what are the withdrawal symptoms that are involved? I divide these out into three categories, psychological symptoms, neurophysiologic symptoms, and somatic symptoms. Uh, and they're very peculiar sometimes. Uh, you know, why would it be 
that an individual will have this burning pain all over, like fibromyalgia, from an agent that works at the GABA receptor. Doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's real. And so very typically, we haven't identified those particular side of uh, those particular withdrawal effects in individuals in previous literature because they weren't listed as being related to the benzodiazepine withdrawal uh, process as well. Peculiar things uh, uh, can otherwise occur, and of course death can occur from a variety of mechanisms in the withdrawal process. But look at this, neurophysiologic symptoms, the electric shock sensation, pain in general, perceptual disturbances where I just hear things, see things, uh, feel things, smell things that have much higher intensity in the withdrawal state. That doesn't make sense when you look at the GABA receptor, uh, and so those of us in the clinical universe were very easy to move that, uh, that particular set of symptoms into must be something else when indeed it can be related to benzodiazepines. Uh, somatic symptoms like nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, cardiovascular problems, chest pain, uh, all involved in that regard. And it's more complicated than that. When individuals withdraw, very typically from addiction-prone substances, there's that acute withdrawal that slowly declines, and there might be a post-withdrawal syndrome, but it also typically tapers off and, and goes to zero. Well, that pattern certainly occurs with benzodiazepine withdrawal, but other patterns also are present there too. I might have a decline, and then it goes up again. And I'm thinking, oh, maybe the anxiety is reasserting itself, or there's a new anxiety syndrome, when in fact, that's a pattern that can be benzodiazepine withdrawal. can be very confusing to those of us uh, taking care of patients. The prolonged severity over time... But then the other one is that on any of these patterns, there can be these spikes in severity that overlie the other patterns. And Heather Ashton called it waves and windows, waves of increased severity, windows of uh, uh, limited severity uh, for individuals. And these, these can spike up and be peculiar and make no sense without any environmental prompt that these individuals will have these. Uh, and it's very frequent uh, to speak to individuals in the benzodiazepine survivor community to describe these waves and windows that are quite uh, prominent and can be quite disabling. They can last for hours, they can last for days or even weeks, and then a window uh, of uh, relief uh, temporarily can, uh, can be present as well. So how do we sort out these symptoms uh, uh, for these individuals in order to get the right attribution two benzodiazepines versus a new diagnosis. Well, psychologic symptoms that are not present before initiating benzodiazepines, uh, such as derealization, depersonalization, may not be there at the beginning, but are there in the withdrawal space. Uh, psychological symptoms that are combined with uh, neurophysiologic and somatic symptoms, the somatic symptoms going along, traveling along in the withdrawal time frame, uh, notably the GI symptoms, neurophysiologic symptoms, particularly movement uh, abnormalities. We see pseudo-seizures, which is kind of a pejorative term as well, uh, that, as if these individuals are making it up, but very much is correlated in, in certain individuals with benzodiazepine withdrawal. The perceptual disturbances, 
the centralized pain, you know, there's kind of two kinds of pain, the nociceptive pain, I cut myself, the nerve notices it, says a message to the brain. Centralized pain, the nervous system itself is abnormal and creates the kind of, kind of pain where individuals will have burning, lightning, electric, shock-like uh, kind of pain uh, for fibromyalgics. Uh, very typically, they'll come in, the shower hurts me, uh, and I call that shower allodynia, where something that is non-painful actually creates pain. Benzodiazepine uh, survivors in the withdrawal space often describe this. And then there's this uh, phenomenon called interdose uh, benzodiazepine withdrawal, and that means that as I'm taking a benzodiazepine and get used to it, as I'm about to come up on that next dose, I'm already having withdrawal, even though I'm still taking that medication. And that interdose withdrawal this, that individuals experience during benzodiazepine use gets accentuated when the withdrawal actually occurs. And then there's the patterns that I'm referring, uh, that I referred to, uh, symptom decline followed by worsening, and the waxing and waning of symptoms uh, as well. So how do we deal with that? It's important to initiate the conversation. You're on a benzodiazepine for four months, two years, whatever it is, may not be a good idea. Uh, so we want to initiate that conversation, plan and support those individuals. Brief intervention, uh, remember experts, screening, brief intervention, referral to treatment, tends to refer to things in the addiction domain, but it's a model that we can use here, and brief intervention with uh, advice, a letter, a uh, self-help book, can initiate that process and interest in individuals to come off of benzodiazepines. The goal actually is benzodiazepine discontinuation, but even if I'm not successful at that, uh, working with a patient, uh, perhaps it's, it certainly is better to be at the lowest dose necessary, uh, if at all. And of course, we need to manage the underlying condition. So if an individual has an anxiety disorder, that needs to be managed in parallel uh, with all of this. Informed consent, critical. It's critical at the front end uh, when we're initiating benzodiazepines so that we can uh, frame out this is a medication that has utility for two to four weeks, but after that, we need to be using other processes uh, to take care of your anxiety and your insomnia. But also at the back end, uh, when we're looking at withdrawal, what do we do, what, what to expect in that regard? Educate our patients. The Ashton Manual, uh, first pub uh, published in 1999, uh, actually written in 99, published in 2000, uh, there's a, an update in 2002 and a supplement in 2011. Heather Ashton, a giant in the field, was early to recognize the problems with benzodiazepine. She also recognized the limited benefit, but the benefits as well, <clears throat> and was able to put together a document uh, <clears throat> in 1999 that described in language that is accessible not only to prescribers, but also to patients, what's going on with benzodiazepines, what side effects can be there, and what to do about that, how to expect uh, uh, what, what actually happens during the withdrawal process, and a step-by-step -step process that is really quite valuable uh, for individuals. Now, some will say in some experience that the schedule of withdrawal 
uh, steps that individuals uh, might use from her scheduling of reductions of the medication uh, were a little too fast, uh, but she addresses that in her, in her paper, saying that you need to be flexible and be ready to adjust the plan at any time. And then, of course, uh, peer coaching. Peer coaching is really important. And so uh, in the universe of uh, benzodiazepine withdrawal sufferers, uh, where did those folks go? Where are they? Uh, because the original researchers didn't see them as well. I've looked at the literature, and part of the problem is the observation period in the literature was not long enough to be able to describe this particular experience. Remember, these side effects and problems can develop after many months of uh, using a benzodiazepines, not necessarily in the one-month, two-month, three-month, eight-month period of observation that individual that these studies had. So they were missed. Uh, one of the researchers, uh, Fava, uh, in 1988, identified this and saw, some, uh, saw a couple individuals with very severe withdrawal and say, probably there are more out there in relation to uh, that kind of difficulty. We just didn't have an observation period long enough to identify, uh, identify that. So why do we as medical clinicians not see this as well? Very often individuals say, well, I never see that. I never see protracted withdrawal. Uh, and I didn't in my practice as well. And as a recovering overprescriber, I can tell you that uh, probably what happened in relation to that is somehow uh, in the communication process, it was perceived that I wasn't truly listening and addressing and affirming that the symptoms that they were presenting with were real and really important, so they went elsewhere. And very typically, they go to the online uh, groups that are out there, Benzo Buddies, uh, Benzodiazepine Information Coalition, uh, to find like uh, individuals that are experiencing this to get good advice, because they didn't get good advice from all of us. Uh, and actually, in my learning process, it was a, a patient who basically taught me you know, how this works and how to move through this process. It was not in the literature that was out there. So how do we do this? Uh, well, we can taper the original benzodiazepine. That can work uh, for individuals. Uh, you don't want to stop benzodiazepines abruptly. And, and we see now an emphasis on benzodiazepines, not good. I'm going to stop you. And a lot of medical prescribers doing that abruptly. And it can be a disaster. Uh, it can be a disaster for a variety of symptoms, but it can also be life-threatening in terms of seizures uh, and death that are associated with that. So you can do that with the original benzodiazepines, uh, but these, uh, many of them are relatively short-acting and can create daily withdrawal of an intensity such that it's very difficult to manage. You can switch to a longer-acting uh, what we call GABAergic uh, uh, agent or a benzodiazepine receptor agonist, something that's longer acting so you won't have that daily, many-time uh, withdrawal during the day. Switch to a long-acting before tapering. That uh, most usefully is going to be uh, diazepam, uh, which has a variety of pill sizes but also has a liquid present, uh, a preparation of 2 milligrams per 1 cc making those reductions easier to do. But you can also use clonazepam, more difficult to do, or phenobarbital uh, as the GABAergic agent uh, before doing that. And you want to taper slowly uh, for these individuals. And there are a variety of uh, uh, studies that are out there that reflect that, hey, you can do this in four weeks. 
Well, that might be true for a significant proportion of individuals, but for a significant proportion of individuals, the withdrawal, uh, the tapering process of four weeks, two months, four months, actually is far too fast. And because of the severity that these individuals experience, I recommend that that tapering process be considered as a 12 to 18 month period of time. Make your initial reduction on the basis of that, maybe a milligram or less of a diazepam or diazepam equivalent. And then if it's really easy, you can go faster after that. But at the front end, uh, it is not a good idea to do that. And to keep that reduction very sequentially uh, reduced in the way that the patients tell us uh, how it works, not what I have thought of as a pre preconceived kind of model, because everybody is different. We're going to hear from John and Terry, uh, and you're going to be able to hear the differences that they experience as well. And you don't want to updose. Uh, remember kindling? When you go up and then back down on something, you can hypersensitize the nervous system and make the subsequent reductions much more difficult. And so as needed dosing of extra doses of benzodiazepines, moving up on benzodiazepines, yeah, it may be necessary in certain circumstances, but avoiding that will make the withdrawal process uh, uh, much better. And adjust the... Uh, the dosing according to what the patient's response are, not what I think that they ought to be are. The, it's a shared decision-making process between the two of you, uh, but it primarily sits with the patient to say, that worked, that didn't work, uh, let's modify that particular process. You can follow, uh, there are about six scales out there in terms of symptom severity. I don't see a lot of utility about this because maybe my symptom severity is mild with regards to anxiety, but severe with regards to pain. It really has to do with the more severe element and to get a global number on severity might minimize the importance of a pain syndrome that individuals have in the withdrawal process. We can add therapies and we do know that cognitive behavioral therapy in the withdrawal process is beneficial. There are adjunctive medications to consider. Carbamazepine uh, has uh, probably the best data, may not be the best agent. Uh, there are a variety of other agents that can be considered. Uh, Buspirone, amipramine, topiramate, trazodone, valproate uh, may all have utility, but frankly, we don't know because the studies aren't there and these are old studies in relation uh, uh, to this. And we need the clinical skills. We need to be patient. We need to collaborate with our team. Motivational interviewing, uh, which uh, at, at, at its most important point is what are your goals in life, what's the current behavior, and does your current behavior link in successfully to the current goals, and what are we going to do about that? And more important than anything, listening to the patients. It turns out the survivors have very extensive knowledge. They are very often more expert in this than you are, uh, as a medical provider if that's where you sit. So, circling back to the GABA receptor uh, in terms of the withdrawal pro process, there are a variety of functions that the GABA receptor are involved with. Sedation, anxiety, relaxation of muscles, amnesia, respiration, anticonvulsant, temperature regulation, physiologic dependence, reward, and addiction. But where do those other symptoms come from? It's a real puzzle, and this becomes important in order to validate the concerns of the uh, benzodiazepine withdrawal 
uh, survivors uh, as well. So the neurophysiology, again, the GABA system, uh, which is the inhibitory system, important. The GABA, uh, the glutamate system, uh, usually responds when uh, benzodiazepines are being used by increasing to try to balance off. That's the excitatory system that is responding to uh, uh, you know, it's the opponent process, as we call it in neurophysiology, that's trying to balance back and bring back to the same level uh, of where you were, the level of equilibrium. And then uh, uh, there is a hypothesis out there uh, by Stephen Lacourte, I think it's brilliant, uh, that has to do with why, the, uh, uh, why is this ongoing withdrawal process or symptom process in the withdrawal or discontinuation uh, state why it goes on forever. And there's a, uh, there's a hypothesis that has to do with oxidative stress, the calcium channel. I won't geek out on that right now, but there are other receptors as well. The adenosine A2 receptors are, uh, seem to be involved, the neuroendocrine system. Uh, those of you involved in behavioral health aware of the polyvagal theory uh, and how that plays in. I think these individuals uh, that have been exposed to benzodiazepines and maybe had no other kinds of trauma in the past, they look like trauma patients to us uh, that are involved here and need to be addressed in that particular way. But here's the new kid on the block. The peripheral benzodiazepine uh, uh, receptors uh, that are out there. Uh, in 1977, it was recognized that benzodiazepines uh, bind all over the body. That was kind of forgotten. In 1992, uh, the peripheral benzodiazepine receptor was identified. We, in the addiction domain and uh, in, in mental health, didn't recognize this as important uh, because it gave, got a different name. It was called the translocator protein, and so the connection uh, wasn't there. Uh, but we do think that this probably contributes also to the oxidative stress as well, uh, these uh, peripheral benzodiazepine receptors. So the translocator protein or the tryptophan-rich uh, 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 sensitive protein uh, found in 1977, isolated in 1992. It's distinctly different from the central receptor, the GABA-A receptor uh, that individuals have. And get this, it's found on the mitochondria, the organelles, the part of the cell that have to do with energy production and also the processing of a variety of uh, chemicals, uh, and is found on uh, some central nervous system cells as well. And look at this, it's all over the place. So no wonder uh, we see the symptoms that are expressed by uh, benzodiazepine uh, uh, survivors who are experiencing withdrawal. Uh, this is possibly an explanatory mechanism. And why is this important? It might explain uh, side effects. It might explain some of the withdrawal reactions. It might provide future therapies. But even without having this information today, today it validates the benzodiazepine survivor experiences. Because what we see out there is a lot of clinicians saying this weirdness that you're having, these strong symptomatic response or symptomatic presentations, are psychosomatic. And we see this all the time. Uh, psychosomatic is sort of a code word for you're crazy. Uh, and we now know that, you know, maybe there's some that are crazy, not, not John or Terry, of course, but, uh, uh, but really not. This is not what's going on. 
but when we don't know something, we tend to shuttle it over to some psychiatric character, uh, ca uh, category uh, that is very inappropriate in this particular context. So, uh, to put this together then, in terms of uh, those of us that are medical providers, listen to your patients. Use the Ashton Manual. It helps both us and the patients uh, limit the initiation of uh, uh, benzodiazepine receptor agonists. Do not use for an OCD or PTSD. Limit the duration of use. And think of it as a bridge two to four weeks. For those who are struggling uh, while on benzodiazepines, don't assume that that anxiety needs to be necessarily responded to by increasing benzodiazepines. Do not assume that addiction is what's going on. This is rare and will lead you down the wrong treatment pathway if that's where you're going. Recommend tapering to everybody that is using benzodiazepines uh, to, with the goal of discontinuing. If that tapering is declined, uh, say, I don't want to do that, well, uh, monitor and manage the risk. And so we monitor by what's the ongoing mood over a period of time, what's the ongoing cognition over a period of time, what is the nocturnal oxygenation or oxygenation status over time as well. If it's accepted, plan first, share decision-making, use the Ashton Manual as a guide, consider substituting with a long-acting benzodiazepine receptor agonist like diazepam, and then taper very slowly with a 12 to 18 month uh, uh, projected uh, process. It may take shorter, it may take longer. Uh, there are individuals out there that have been in the tapering process for years, and that needs to be recognized that everybody is actually quite different in that regard, and we need to respond accordingly. Adjust the dose and the reduction amount as well as the intervals. Uh, so we might reduce something, but stick with that for four months. Uh, because what you really want to have is a pause in the intensity of the withdrawal symptoms before making the next reduction. The continuous withdrawal intensity is very difficult to handle. Add cognitive behavioral therapy. Consider adjunctive medications. Avoid the updosing or use of as-needed medications. And as you're getting closer to complete discontinuation, you've got to slow that down, just like we do for steroids or buprenorphine, for those of you that are involved with all of that. And if the symptoms persist, support, encourage. And we don't have any data on that, but I think that you want to get the foundational health of these individuals optimized as best as possible. Functional medicine providers can be very valuable in that regard. We do not have any data on nutrition, but working with a nutritionist I think has value to specifically look at what works for this particular individual. The problem is there's no global one diet that works for everybody. Uh, individuals may say this one works and the other person says it doesn't for me, uh, so it needs to be truly individualized. And uh, did I mention listen to your patient? They very often are gonna have the next best idea, not you. You know, how many times I'm, I'm at the you know, exam room door and I think, I know the answer to this. And I walk in, if I take a moment to listen to the patients, very often they tell me the answer, even if it's indirectly, uh, they tell me the next best answer. It's not, um, you know, what, I, uh, what I'm thinking about. And the problem is in our universe is that we have physicians that have the M-deity syndrome, right? Uh, they think, you know, they know it all. 
in, in that regard, and all of us that are involved in that universe need to give a pause that our expertise is not global, uh, that the individual has expertise in their experience and actually may have more expertise on benzodiazepines than we do, and we need to honor that particular process. It's a back-and-forth process, and listening is really quite key. There are six gravestones around the world that have the words, I told him I was sick, and for me, that's messaging to listen uh, to our, our, our patients. We have this tension in a medical environment between evidence-based medicine and personalized medicine. Evidence-based medicine is developed on studies of groups of individuals that are fairly homogeneous. They're fairly similar. I'm going to exclude everybody with cancer because they might die in my study or something like that. Well, the person sitting in front of you is not a generic patient, is not necessarily described by that particular study, and we need to personalize it. And in fact, evidence-based medicine was never meant to exclude uh, personalized medicine. So it's evidence-based uh, personalized uh, medicine. So in 1914, uh, Franz Kafka uh, wrote a, uh, a wonderful novel. Uh, he comes out of the existentialist tradition, The Trial. And in the trial, an uh, individual woke up one morning without having done anything wrong and was arrested. Jo Joseph K. was arrested. And over more than a year period of time, he never is able to figure out why he was arrested and being accused uh, for, for something. Uh, and, and it's like that for individuals with benzodiazepines. What's going on here? How can I be here? How, what are the explanatory mechanisms? Was it my fault? Uh, and there's and a lot of that my fault kind of thing uh, occurs there. Uh, you know, or was it the providers uh, doing this, that, and the other? And we all share in, in the, that particular challenge. And the response may be uh, for a, a survivor, and in this case the trial, one must lie low no matter how much it went against the grain, and try to understand. If somebody looked upon himself to alter the dispositions of things around him, he ran the risk of losing his footing and falling to destruction. This is a very tenuous situation. While the organization, read medical, uh, uh, medical system, would simply write itself by some compensatory mechanism since everything is interlocked, and remain unchanged. So we need to actually change in that regard. Uh, this is not patient's fault. Uh, we need to be uh, fully recognizing that what they are bringing forward to us has validity, not discredit it as well. And this is the, uh, the challenge. I cannot find my way in this darkness. And so I want to stop speaking now and uh, introduce John, who's going to tell us a bit about his story uh, and Terry will follow as well, uh, because that's really the expression of these particular stories much more important than anything that I have to say in terms of recognizing the reality of this. So we put together a conference in 2017 in Bend, Oregon, and we had all the academic stuff, which uh, those of us that geek out on this kind of stuff, uh, we love it. But all of us geeks in the academic universe, uh, we had our eyes open. We had a panel of individuals, Terry was among those, who spoke to their individual experiences and all of us universally said, I did not know. And it was the expression of these individual stories that drove home the reality of it, the severity of it, for maybe not 
the vast majority of individuals that are experiencing challenges with benzodiazepines, but it's at such a severe level uh, and frequent enough, thousands, tens of thousands, as we can see in the uh, online universe, that it's really important to hear those stories and address them for where they are. John? Thank you. Could you um, cut the projector? Well, thanks for having me today. Um, <laughs> this is my first time actually publicly telling my story, so um, bear with me. And I'm going to try to condense um, six years of experience and really torment into 15 minutes. So, um, And for those of us that aren't doctors in the room, which I think is most of us, I think it's important to reiterate, you know, benzodiazepines are... Ativan, Xanax, Clonopin, um, Librium, and what's what's one of the other common ones I'm missing? Maybe maybe that's all. So, yeah, I mean, because I, I I just mentioned that because I think every adult American can recognize Xanax. They know, they know somebody who's on Xanax, or they know, you know, a joke about somebody being, you know, prescribed Xanax or what have you. So. Um, it's in the social consciousness. Um, so about myself, um, I'm um, well. I'm, I'm currently still on a benzodiazepine. I'm on eight milligrams of Valium, and I've been tapering for three years now. Um, and who am I, and how did I get to this point? Um, my day job is I'm the open space manager for the town of Eagle up in Eagle, Colorado. Um, I have a degree in environmental science from UCLA, um, and my background has always been in natural resources management, outdoor recreation, and basically city and county local government um, and environmental consulting. Um, I was put on Xanax my freshman year in college. Um, my, um, uh, my girlfriend at the time dumped me. Um, I started failing chemistry, um, felt kind of overwhelmed with the change of college life, went to student health, and um, walked out with a prescription for Xanax. Um, started taking it, um, and uh, I, I remember vividly, I was never told anything about, you know, this should only be for two to four weeks, or this is temporary, or... I was told I had generalized anxiety disorder, and the treatment for that was uh, was Xanax. So I filled the prescription and you know started taking it, and kept taking it for months. And months turned into years, um, always under the supervision of a doctor who said I should you know keep taking the Xanax because that I needed it. Um, and um, after probably it was about four or five years of being on Xanax. I had my first episode of of depression, um, not serious enough that I was suicidal, but you know, hopeless, um, down, pessimistic about my future, um, lethargic, um, and you know, that's when I really became kind of enmeshed in psychiatry, I guess you could say, um, because that's when the antidepressant I was prescribed an antidepressant for the, that depression. Um, and then as the years went on, um, you know, the depression kind of waxed and waned and sometimes would come back and then would kind of drift away. And, um, but that was the, 
that early on was I was the first psychiatrist I saw, and over the years I saw five different psychiatrists, um, always thinking I needed to, you know, like a heart patient, um, be diligent about my um, medication for my mental disorder that I had. Um, I would change psychiatrists just when I maybe had to change insurances or I had to change the job, change location. Um, so I had consistent care um, throughout the past 30 years. Um, never once in that 30 years did a doctor tell me, psychiatrist or primary care doctor, say, uh, you know what, this medication was not meant to be used long term. Um, we should try to taper you off. In fact, there were times when I said to the doctor, I, multiple times over the years, where I said, gosh, you know, I feel like I'm doing pretty well. Life is going good. Do I really need to be on this, on the Xanax and on the antidepressant? You know, could we maybe see about taking me off of it? Um, I had, um, and, and the response was almost always, um, no, you have generalized anxiety disorder. You're still experiencing some anxiety. This is an anti-anxiety medicine. You need to stay on it. Um, I did have one, one psychiatrist say at one time, um, well, it can be kind of hard to get off of, and you're still experiencing anxiety, so let's just not go there now. Um, but um, in any case, and, and the only other real warnings I ever had about, about taking the Xanax was when my wife and I were going to, we took a bit of a sabbatical 15 years ago, and we were did a backpacking trip around the world, um, slummed it in hostels for nine months. And... Um, I had a nine-month supply of my Xanax in my backpack, and my doctor said, you know, well, just make sure you don't lose your Xanax because you could have seizures if you were to lose it. Um, little did I know what I know now, which is I probably could have been arrested in a lot of, in Thailand and a lot of the countries we traveled to if anyone found that much Xanax in my backpack. Um, but my doctor prescribed it to me. He prescribed a nine-month supply. Um, and... Um, uh, I was always, always 100% compliant. I'd, I don't have any history of addiction of any kind. Never, no, no alcohol, no marijuana, no, uh, no substance abuse whatsoever. Um, you know, just the typical college routine of, you know, going to parties and drinking more than you should. Little did I know, I was never told that, you know, oh, by the way, if you drink too much with your Xanax, you could not wake up in the morning. That was never told to me. You could just stop breathing. That was never told to me. I, if, if that had been told to me, I wouldn't have drank, like I, because I wasn't a drinker, really. I just liked to go to parties. Um, <laughs> um, the, uh, but um, let's see here. I, um, then, uh, then in 2012. Um, life was actually, you know, it was another period. Life was going really good. My, my wife and I had been trying for several years to get pregnant. Um, she became pregnant. We were ecstatic over it. Um, work life was going well. Uh, and I was, I was on three milligrams of Xanax at that point. You know, I had been, I think I was started at probably one milligram. I don't remember the specifics, but... I do remember, you know, occasionally over the years, a psychiatrist would be like, well, let's increase your dose to 1.5, or let's increase it to 2, or 
I now know that three milligrams of Xanax is a lot of Xanax, but it didn't occur to me because it just creeped with the with what doctors recommended for me. Um, and then, but then in 2015 or 2013, something changed, and I, and I or well, it was actually in that 2012 time range. I remember telling my doctor that again. I was revisiting. I was like, things are going well. Do I really need to be on the Xanax? And and his response was, well, you know, we can go ahead and reduce it some. We'll, we'll reduce it from three milligrams to two milligrams. So I went ahead and reduced it. I didn't notice any, any immediate reaction from that. Um, but then in around 2013, I started, I would just wake up in the mornings feeling like I was run over by a, a truck, like I was exhausted in the morning. I'd get eight hours of sleep and just feel absolutely like I had slept two hours that night. And I was like, this is strange. I don't I don't know why this is occurring. Um, it was before my son was born, so I wasn't... <laughs> it wasn't new parent syndrome yet. <laughs> but, um, and then that, you know, and then symptoms just started to kind of tack on. I, I Like, then I would start having these heart palpitations out of nowhere, just driving the car, and I'd feel my heart kind of fluttering, and I could feel like my pulse like reverberating like in my carotid artery sort of and so I went to the cardiologist and I said, you know, they did a whole cardiac workup and they said, "Well, you're absolutely fine. You're having some benign PACs and PVCs, but nothing to worry about, which is probably what you're feeling." Um, and then but then the other things started happening like I would I would, my hands would feel sort of arthritic. I'd have, feel like I had pain and joint pain in my in my fingers, and then I started having some muscle pain. Um, and um, and then about 2014 is when things got a lot worse because cognitively I started something was something was wrong cognitively with me. It was like my mind was made of molasses. I I couldn't process emails, like I'd see a list of emails and I couldn't follow the chain of like, okay, what do I need to do to respond to this? And I'd be assembling my son's lunch um, and I'd be like, okay, the peanut butter is over here and the jelly's here and and it, everything was taking me two or three times as long as it normally would. And it got bad enough to the point one time I, my wife thought I had had a seizure. She She saw me standing in the in the kitchen, and I was kind of motionless, just staring. And I remember thinking, I, I couldn't decide what to do next. Like, what what was what was my, what was I doing here? What am I what am I doing? And and she and it scared her so badly, she took me to the ER. Um, and of course, I hadn't had a stroke. Um, they did an MRI and. So the doctor visits just started piling up. I went to my primary care physician, and he said, well, you know, ran blood tests, and he said, everything looks fine. Um, I got so frustrated with my primary care physician, I went to another primary care physician. Um, same routine. I, and I, I just felt like if I accurately reported my symptoms, you know, if I was the good patient, and I said, you know, these are my symptoms, and described them, accurately, discreetly, that surely a medical professional was going to figure out what's going on with me. And the list of symptoms was growing, and it went from, 
you know, two or three at the beginning, all the way up to 45 different things from my skin burning and um, sounds were loud and I'd startle easily and smells, like smells were just intense and light sensitivity and um, word finding, I would stutter sometimes, I couldn't find my words and and then emotional issues started like, I'd get into a discussion with my wife that would <clears throat> normally turn maybe just be a disagreement where we agree to disagree, and I'd go into a state of rage. I mean, I would I would yell at her like I've never yelled at her in our 20 years of marriage. And she would look at me and she'd say, John, I don't even know who you are right now. I don't know this person. And I, I would have this looping looping thought in my head that, you know, I'm right and I've got to prove to her that I'm right and I'm going to argue until she's convinced that I'm right. And um, uh, so it was putting tremendous strain on our marriage. Um, And I kept getting referrals. Uh, You know, I had some doctors that believed I was experiencing these symptoms and that I truly had something severely wrong with me. And so I was getting referrals to neurologists um, I saw a neurologist here on the front range. I um, went to rheumatologists for seeking answers to the pain issues. Um, had all sorts of you know MRIs and blood tests and you know extensive testing done. Everything was coming back normal. The one thing, one thing that a neurologist sent me for was neuropsychological testing, which is you know cognitive functioning testing. And I came back in the 98th percentile in my verbal skills. But things like my executive functioning, my processing speed, um, those were all in like the 15th percentile and the 20th percentile. And, and I remember talking to one doctor and saying, you know, he said, well, you seem fine. And I said, well, I can talk to you just fine, but I can't put my son's lunch together in the morning. And I, I even told him, I said, I bet if I was in the 20th percentile in verbal skills and you saw that you would believe me and his response was well john we all forget things you know we all get for especially when you're getting up close to 50 we're all we all get forgetful um but my wife and i were so i mean we were convinced i was dying of something i had to be dying of some, you know something something had to be caught or else i because i was just getting worse and worse and I, and and at one point i had one er doctor say to me he said, you know, it might be something to do with your benzodiazepine. And I said, oh, okay, well, what should I do about that? And he said, well, you should reduce it. You should try to reduce it. Um, and I, and I, taught, I spoke to my psychiatrist at that time, and I said, you know, that planted a seed. And I said, you know what? Nobody's coming. And my psychiatrist was adamant that it was not anything to do with my meds. I said, is it anything to do with my meds? Point blank. He said, no, definitely not. Um, he was the one encouraging me to see neurologists and to see other specialists. Um, so I finally um, told him, you know what? I just want to eliminate variables. Uh, taper me off of my meds. Uh, to just taper me off. I, I don't want to, uh, you know, maybe it is. Some, I know you're saying it's not it has to do with the meds, but taper me off. So he started cutting me from the two milligrams of Xanax I was on to one and a half, one and a half to 1.25, then to one. So I know now clearly I was in benzo withdrawal and I was going deeper into benzo withdrawal, which is why I was getting sicker. 
but no doctor was making that connection. Um, so by the fall of 2017, we, my wife and I got an appointment with the Mayo Clinic. We flew to, flew to Minnesota, got in with their neurology department, got an extensive five-day workup, all sorts of scans and everything. The neurologist there said that um, they repeated my neuropsych testing, and they said, yeah, we're getting the same results. You've definitely got something wrong going on. Um, and they said, um, you, um, we think you have autoimmune encephalitis. Um, so I came back to Colorado with a script to go to our local cancer center to get IV infusions of steroids and IVIG um, treatments for it was like 16 weeks of treatments. And I kept reporting back to the Mayo Clinic, I'm not feeling any better at all. I, I, I'm feel, if anything, I'm feeling worse. Um, and, then, and then a turning point came. Um, I, and it, was just, it was shortly after those infusions. Um, I talked to my psychiatrist who was still tapering me. He had switched me over to Valium. And he had said, you know, well, next week, just reduce from 12 milligrams of Valium down to 10. And I did that on like a Friday night. And then Saturday morning, I woke up. I knew something was not right. I felt things felt strange. I didn't know what was different. My wife said to me, you know, it's, it was a Saturday. She said, I need you to run to Costco and I need you to do this and a couple other things. And I screamed at her at the top of my lungs, I can't do this. I can't do this. And I, in a rage, I screamed at her. I left the house and my, my mind was in a looping out of control state that I've never been in, in, in my life. Got in my car, was driving erratically. And I just had this urge that I had to escape. Somehow I had to just escape. And I didn't know what that looked like, but I, drove and I drove off on a dirt road. I got out of the car and I just saw a cliff and I started hiking up the side of the hill to get to the top of the cliff and I just said to myself, I'm gonna jump. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump. I'm gonna kill myself. That's how I'm gonna escape. And to keep in mind I hadn't really been depressed prior to this. I, I know what depression looks like and I hadn't been in that state. It was just like a, a, a switch had been flipped. And suddenly, uh, I just had this urge to, to kill myself. And luckily, I had visions of my kids go through my head as I was hiking up that hill. And I started saying to myself, you know, John, this is not who you are. This is not who you are. This is not happening today. And I turned around and walked down the hill, drove back home, went in the, and apologized profusely to my wife. And she said, John, what, what happened? What happened? What is going on? And I said, it's got to be the Valium. It's got to be the Valium. I reduced my Valium yesterday. That's got to be it. And then we got online and started Googling benzo withdrawal, um, Valium withdrawal, and the Benzo Buddies support group came up. Uh, Ashton Manual, we came across the Ashton Manual, and I went through the Ashton Manual to take it together. We spent that whole day just researching. And we're like, that's my symptom, that's my symptom, that's my symptom. And we were, we were dumbfounded. 30, 34 doctors we had seen, and not one had honed in and said, you're in benzo withdrawal, absolutely. Just that one ER doc who said, you know, maybe it's something to do with your benzos, why don't you reduce it? And I, when I reduced it on his re recommendation, I went into a state of like not sleeping more than two hours a night for a couple of months. So 
So he was on the right track, but it was too fast for me what he wanted me to do. Um, so as far as um, where I'm at now, I can only reduce my dose at a maximum of about 7% per month. I have to dissolve my pills in water and then use a syringe to take a tiny amount out. So I do a daily micro taper where I reduce a tiny amount each day. Um, I have symptoms every single day, 24-7 um, really. I mean, just sitting here now, I can feel the burning skin sensation and the ringing in my ears, the tinnitus. Um, I go through my day feeling like, this way I can describe it as like I've had three beers to drink with four cups of coffee. Like my nervous system is kind of on edge, but I've got that spaciness of when you've had a few too many drinks and you're not quite connected to your surroundings. Um, the um, I have experienced windows, um, which, and those windows, um, for me, they've only lasted maybe four or five hours at a time. But it was like, but all my symptoms just melted, like out of nowhere, for no reason. Just, and I've, during those windows, I've had these senses, this sense of calm, like I have not known my entire life, my entire adult life. I mean, I, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like the colors in the sky look brighter, the scenery looks more beautiful, the, if my nervous system was like a tuning fork that's always slightly quivering, it's like somebody gently just put their hand around it and, and made it calm. And from other survivors that I've talked to, I've said, are windows what it feels like when you're off of benzos? And they've said, absolutely, that's, that's what's waiting for you. Um, Ironically, when I was on three milligrams of Xanax, I wouldn't have been able to speak in front of a group this large. I would have been too anxious. I, and I would have done what my doctor always told me to do when I did have to do town council meetings or something and take an extra half milligram of Xanax. And, but panic attacks were common for me when I was on three milligrams of Xanax. I just recently, we just recently flew back from LA from visiting family and Flights used to terrify me because that was number one trigger for panic attacks for me. And I'd take my extra half milligram of Xanax and it was still hit and miss whether I was going to have a panic attack. I, um, we were flying over the Rockies with, with turbulence like crazy and it's like, I can't have a panic attack. It's like, I don't get the sweaty palms, I don't get the racing heart rate. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of unique that way in that I'm in withdrawal and the anxiety is not that bad. But that said, if I taper too quickly, if I try to taper at like 10% a month, I go into a state of terror. It's like a panic attack that lasts for all day long that you can't calm yourself down from. So if I go too quickly, it's, it's intolerable. It's not survivable to, you know, if someone were to say to me, well, just cut your dose in half, I would be in a panic attack 24-7 for a month at a time. Um, so, um, in any case, I think I'm, I'm kind of out of time, but I'm, I'm happy to answer questions later or talk later if people want to. I, I think, um, I, I, do, I do want to just mention that, I mean, how has this affected my life? I've gone from full-time employment to part-time. 
Um, I'm going, going into sort of the red zone of tapering, the toughest part of the tapering, even after all I've been through. I might have to quit my job. I don't know that I'm going to be able to continue to work. Um, things that I used to love, like skiing, I used to do mountain guiding, um, backcountry trips, I, I can't physically do those anymore. My wife does most of the childcare. I can't take care of my kids, really, um, a lot of the time. Um, and the, and friends, friends do not understand this whatsoever. It's the loneliest experience I've ever been through. And I've, I've been in depression. I know what depression is like to have someone feel like nobody gets it and nobody understands and nobody, but when you're depressed, you can go to a mental health provider and you can say, I feel depressed and they know what you're talking about and they have a treatment, they have a solution, they have... But when you go into that same mental health provider and say, my medication has damaged me, what should I do? And they'd have nothing to offer you, then you have no alternative than to turn to the, the internet to get support. Um, so I've lost friends during this because of the tension that it's caused. And um, so yeah, no, nobody should have to go through this. That's that's the bottom line. I'll hand it over to you. So first I want to say thank you to Steve for doing the work that you're doing and for having people like you attend an event like this to understand what's going on with benzodiazepines. I want to thank John for sharing his story. And I think the best way to describe what happened to me is it happened one pill at a time, one prescription at a time. And the changes to my life were so dramatic that part of the reason I'm here today is I said to myself while I was going through the withdrawal that if I live through this, it is my duty to inform people like you and everyone who will listen about the severity of what is really going on. So hopefully by the time I'm done, you will have it clear in your mind that you need to rethink, if you do prescribe, or if you have patients that you see who are actively taking the medication and who need to taper, that you will become a support for them. That is my goal. So who am I? I am a mother of a 14-year-old. I am a person who took prescribed benzodiazepines for 15 years. I've had sleep problems most of my life, and I handled that most of the time with Benadryl or Tylenol PM. And I got to a point in my professional life, I was working for a, a large corporation. I had earned a master's degree at that point, And I was having challenges uh, with my manager. And I wasn't sleeping very well. I was also managing a team of people that were in Europe. And I was up at really weird times. I was traveling a lot. My sleep schedule was really off. And I would typically wake up at 3 in the morning and I would take calls or interact with the people that were across uh, the world. And so the combination of factors happened, and I went to a doctor, and they initially prescribed one of the Z drugs, Ambien, and it did not go well for me at all. Took it once or twice, had a terrible reaction to it, said this is not the right medication. They tried um, an antidepressant. That did not go well either. I didn't like that medication. So they prescribed something called Ativan, it seemed pretty innocuous at the time. I was given no warnings, uh, nothing about, oh, two weeks 
you know, two to four weeks is the maximum amount of time you should take it. And so I always assumed it would be like the Benadryl or the Tylenol PM. You may not feel so great, you might have some lingering effect, but it would not be a big deal to taper. What ended up happening, it was sort of a weird sequence of events. My doctor, the prescribing doctor, left his practice. No warning whatsoever, went to the next doctor. She continued to prescribe. I left my job. That was sort of a good solution for me for some of the stress I was having. And I went back to graduate school. And I was studying at Harvard. I ended up uh, getting my master's and then working for them. And I continued to take the medication. But while I was working at Harvard, I said, you know, enough of this medicine, I want to get off of it. And I did it by myself. I didn't really talk to anyone about it. And within probably about four or five days, I started to notice some symptoms that were pretty terrifying for me. I wasn't sleeping. I felt a lot of anxiety. Went back on the medication. It was a very small dose at that time. The maximum I ever took was the equivalent of 10 milligrams of Valium. This went on for a number of years. And there was one other event that happened where I wasn't taking the medicine every day, but a lot of the days per week I was taking it. So the event that happened was I had been hearing about um, there was a transition from Ativan to Clonopin, that there were problems with Clonopin and that I should get off of the Clonopin. And so I was pushing really hard for the doctor to transition the medication. And there was some resistance, a lot of resistance in the beginning. And then ultimately I was transitioned, but she made a dosing error. So instead of giving me the equivalent of 10 milligrams of, uh, from clonopin to Valium, it was 10 to 1. So essentially what happened is I was put into a forced withdrawal and I started having tremors, uh, sleeplessness, severe, severe anxiety. And I was a PhD student at this point and I did very poorly on an exam. And I couldn't explain it. It was a difficult class. It was like an econometric modeling class. It was very difficult no matter what. But because of what was happening with the medication, I, I got a pretty bad grade on the exam. So I went to a new doctor because I was still having these serious tremors, like I could visibly see this happening. And I called this other doctor and said, something has gone wrong. And she said, well, essentially the other doctor took your brain over a cliff. And you need to get on this new um, higher doses of, dosage of medication immediately. So again, I stabilized. But what was happening through this process is I was learning that withdrawal and tapering is not a happy place to be. So I resisted for as long as possible. I ended up having my child um, while I was still taking the medication. They considered me a high-risk pregnancy. Even though I was at a low dose, it was too dangerous to stop taking the medication uh, while I was pregnant. I had my daughter, broke my back, tore three discs during labor and delivery. I don't know if any of it was related to taking the benzodiazepines. I will never know for sure. I just had a really strong reaction to the epidural. I, I broke my own back. Um, and there were, there were some challenges with that. Anyway, they co-prescribed opioids and benzos for 10 years. So 10 of the 15 years I was co-prescribed. Fast forward, a lot of things were happening in the news. A lot of celebrities were dying people who were being co-prescribed were especially at risk. And they would show these medications. And invariably, the medications that I was taking were showing up on the list. So I would go to my doctors. I'd say, what's going on? Should I be off this medication? And they said, no, no, you're not at risk. You're taking it as prescribed. But I could see gradually that there was a cognitive um, challenge or difference in how I was performing in a PhD program. I was still getting very good grades, but my memory was definitely being impacted. 
So I kept moving forward. It got to the point, there, there was actually an event. I was uh, traveling, um, I was in Washington State. I had to get up very early for a flight and I fell. I, I just slipped and I fell. And then I got to the airport and there were three gate changes and I had my carry-on bag. So I already have a bad back. I'm on these medications, it's super early in the morning. I'm changing gates, changing gates. Finally, by the time I get to Denver, I can barely walk. And I'm thinking, okay, this is enough already. I don't even know what's wrong with me anymore. I don't know what you know the severity of my back injury is. I don't know what's happening with my sleep. I know nothing. And then Prince was um, in the news having died from these medications again. And I said, okay, I am done. I don't care what the doctor says. I'm not going to continue to be the passive patient. And you know, so many years had gone by. I'm not performing well in my program. I am done with this. So I set out a plan. I talked to my benzo prescribing doctor. I talked to my pain management opioid prescribing doctor. The benzo prescribing doctor knew nothing. I never tapered anyone. I don't know the first thing about it. The pain doctor said to me, okay, here's the plan. We're going to taper you off in two weeks. You're going to go down basically, you know, milligram at a time, and then in this short period of time, you will be done. I knew that that couldn't possibly be right because I was taking the equivalent of 10 milligrams of Valium at that time. So I reached out to my allergist and I reached out to the pharmacist and I said, I am intending to do this. Please help me, you know, figure out a way so I don't end up dying from um, the seizure or, you know, some other very serious situation. My mother uh, came to town and she was going to be my support. And I just created an environment where I could go through this process on my own. I tapered off the opioids within a week. I, I, I was just like done. And it was not pretty, I will say that. In terms of the benzos, I thought it was reasonable to have a 10-week plan. So a milligram per week, so unlike the micro-tapering, I'm like, I'm going to power through it, I'm going to get it done, and uh, I think this is the best way. Well, part of my strategy was uh, change my diet, exercise as much as possible, meditate, you know, totally healthy living. And when I, you know, my heart is pounding, I think my resting pulse was averaging sometimes around 110. Currently, it's somewhere between 55 and 60 is a normal resting pulse for me. Um, but if I went to the mountains and if I ran really hard or I worked out really hard, maybe that would like somehow bring my body back to equilibrium. There were waves and windows, there were moments, but in the beginning, I slept probably an hour. There were moments that were so unimaginably unbearable that I was certain I was not going to survive. There's, and some of you may work with people like this who've actually experienced cutting. I've never been a cutter. I, I'm not drawn to that behavior. But I could understand at the worst moments what it might be like to want to relieve the internal pain that you might be having. And I remember sometimes I would isolate myself. I didn't want my daughter and my mother to see um, the severity of what was happening. I didn't want to frighten anybody. But I would stay in my room, I would journal. Sometimes I'd do PowerPoints, like, if I live, this is what I'm going to tell people. And I went through it. It took about 18 months for me to have a normal, like a full normal day. I reached out after about 60, 90 days to Narcotics Anonymous. I never thought I was an addict, but I didn't know who to go to. So you can go to the pharmacist or the allergist so many times, and they will support you. But who do you talk to in the middle of the night when you're having your worst moments? And I found that the people in Narcotics Anonymous who had been benzo survivors 
were actually some of my greatest resources because they had lived it, they had gone through it, they had survived it, and they knew, they knew what to do. I found out about Benzo Buddies. I found uh, Dr. Wright. I think I was maybe 60 days into my um, taper. I mean, I had already tapered, but into the withdrawal and the post-acute withdrawal. I met uh, Dr. Wright, and we began talking about it. And I think that was very helpful to know that there was somebody out there. But again, the medical community simply didn't know what to do. And when we went to the International Benzodiazepine Symposium in Bend, Oregon in 2017, it was a room of experts that didn't know what we had gone through. So I think it's super important that all of you begin to understand this is a traumatizing event that probably most people don't have the courage or capacity or endurance to confront. It is much easier to get that prescription and take that pill and stabilize. But the one thing that I notice about my experience, and I am completely off all medication except for Tylenol, aspirin, and naproxen, and occasional Benadryl, because I'm a, a Zyrtec, I'm an allergy sufferer, but that's it, is it was as if a switch went off in my brain. And the switch went off when I started taking the benzodiazepines. I couldn't have told you that as it was occurring, but after I got off of them, the switch went back on. And the way I started to notice it was through laughter, through um, memory, through life experience. And it was as if there were memories that had been suppressed that came flooding back into my mind. And I thought, where have they been hiding? How did they go dormant? But it, that's exactly what happened for me, and that was my experience. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that would be helpful. I cannot emphasize enough in terms of me and my personal experience, how important wellness and healthy living were for me to change my life. So I drank a lot of water. I think caffeine of any kind is horrible if you're trying to taper or detox. Sugar actually can be very bad as well. Um, all sorts of healthy foods. Uh, I tried to eat for a while, gluten-free, sugar-free. You know, it was like, okay, enough of all the free. I just want to have something that tastes good. Um, but I started gardening, I started building things, I started um, creating a life that I understood. And I think part of what's wrong in our society that I think all of you probably may already know, but I just want to reiterate, is that we don't know how to do the hard work. So if I had gone to the doctor in the very first place and said, okay, I'm having stress at work, I have this really weird sleep schedule, it's not working for me, and they said, okay, your prescription is I want you to go exercise, meditate, spend time with friends and family that love you, and journal, who knows what my life might have been like. But nobody had that conversation because I don't think people think that way. And so it's like, here, take this pill. And, and it did work. It did help with the sleep. But it created so many unintended consequences that only today do I feel like I have enough control over my life and my lifestyle and my choices that I can go to the doctor. And Steve and I go back and forth on this topic a lot because I have chronic pain. When am I willing to take a pill? Almost never. And why is that? Because I have inside of my body somehow there's PTSD. My body has like muscle memory kind of around medication. And just the slightest amount of medication, I feel like I have some post-acute withdrawal again. I think there's alternatives. I think there's a better way to live. I feel like I found it, and I went the very long and meandering road to get there. But that's all I have to share, and hopefully that will help you in your decision.
If you enjoy the Emergency Medical Minute, please help us out by rating us on iTunes. For more free medical education, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Make a donation and subscribe to our newsletter at emergencymedicalminute.com.